0: And uh, can the rest of us find um, Second Corinthians chapter 8? This is on page 1149 in the Church Bibles. 2 Corinthians chapter 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Well, now let's um, pray and ask God for his help as we come to consider his word. Lord God, we do want to thank you so much for the wonderful privilege we have now of sitting under your word. And we thank you that your word is so strong and so powerful. We thank you that it can change the way that we think and change the way that we live. We pray, Lord, that this will happen today, that each one of us will hear you, the living God, speaking to us through your word. We ask through Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, these verses mark... The beginning of a new section in this book of 2 Corinthians. For any who are new to the church here, uh, in on Sunday mornings I've been going through uh, 2 Corinthians with a bit of a break over the summer. And in this chapter, chapter 8 and also chapter 9 of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul encourages the believers in Corinth to contribute generously to a collection that he was getting together to help poor believers in the Jerusalem church. Now the background for this was that the believers in Jerusalem had fallen on hard times. A few years before there had been a famine and the believers in another church, Antioch, had joined together and... Uh, Sent a gift to the church in Jerusalem via Barnabas and Paul. Well, now the church in Jerusalem was facing fresh economic difficulties. And so the apostle urged the largely Gentile churches uh, that he had planted around these different areas around the the Roman Empire uh, to join together and to send a gift to the, uh, the church in Jerusalem in order to supply the needs of the poor people in the church in Jerusalem now this gift was something that to take this gift was very very important to the apostle paul and that's shown by the fact that it's mentioned both here in this in this um in this second letter of corinthians it's also mentioned in towards the end of 1st Corinthians it's also mentioned in his letter to the Romans and it's also it's the fact that he considered it to be so important is shown by the fact that he was determined that he would take this gift in person to the church in Jerusalem now he knew that that would be first of all very costly in terms of time probably several months it would take to travel there but but also that the journey itself would be very very dangerous but also he knew that Jerusalem was a very dangerous place for him to be in he was a wanted man because the jews hated him because he had preached the gospel to gentiles and Moreover, he was warned by the the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit told him that he would suffer greatly when he went to Jerusalem. Yet, he was absolutely determined to take this gift. And he believed it was to be the right thing to do before God to take it. Why was he so keen that this gift should be put together? And why was he so keen to take it to Jerusalem? Well, I think there are three reasons. Firstly, because... Obviously, just at the human level, he had compassion on those poor believers in Jerusalem. He could see they were really suffering, they were finding it hard to get enough money together to even eat, and so he, he wanted to help out these believers. Secondly, also, undoubtedly, he, he thought that it would be good for the, the churches where he'd which he'd planted around the different areas around the Roman Empire, for them to learn the virtue of generosity. And but then thirdly, uh, he clearly, one part of the reason why, why he considered this to be so important was because this would help the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers, the non-Jewish believers, to realize that they were all part of one body. For him, the unity of the church was really important. There was a great risk, he knew there was a great risk, that what would happen in time was that the, the the Jewish believers would drift off in a more and more Jewish direction. The Gentile believers would drift off in a more and more Gentile direction or, or non-Jewish direction and a great rift would come between the churches. So he wanted to bring this gift in order, to, in order to bring together the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers so that they they loved each other, and and particularly to prove to the Jewish believers that the Gentile believers really valued their brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, of course, we are living in, very different times today. We don't, we don't have that same sort of situation that we're in uh, with a with a with a, with a Jewish church in Jerusalem that, that's very very poor, um, and so on. But it's always important for Christians to be generous with their money. Uh, Jesus spoke, didn't he, lots of times about how we should be we should give to the poor. He told his disciples that they should uh, be careful not to love their money, and they should give away a large proportion of their money uh, in order to gain treasure for themselves in heaven. And then also uh, of course the Bible also teaches that. That those who serve the Lord with teaching and preaching need to be provided for. Paul talks about that in 1 Corinthians uh, quite a bit and other places as well in 1 Timothy 5. And also, let's be honest and, and be practical, uh, the Lord's people have got to meet somewhere. <laughs> unless, you know, unless a member of the congregation has got an enormous house, <laughs> if once the church grows beyond, you know, 20 or 30 people it's going to need to find somewhere to meet. And either it's going to need to rent somewhere or it's going to need to build somewhere and maintain that building. Now, both of those options, neither of those options come cheap. So people sometimes say, oh, well, what, what do you want to keep a building for? Why don't you just rent? Well, you try renting a place. Talk to people who rent places and they say, well, we're paying thousands and thousands of pounds every week for, for our place. So then you think, oh, actually, you know, uh, spending you know a bob or two maintaining an existing building is not actually that bad idea, but it, but where's that going to come to? Come from? What well, it needs to come from, largely, doesn't it, from the giving of the Lord's people? So, uh, although the circumstances are different, the principles which we see in this passage we can transfer, I think, quite easily and readily to our own lives and our own situation here in the. 21st century. Now, there's a lot in these two chapters, um, and, and and it's going to take, I think, a few weeks for us to, to, to do justice to uh, what is being spoken of here in these chapters. I think the best thing to do for today is to focus on verses 1 to 5, uh, because this forms a little section by itself. Where Paul is talking about the example of the churches in Macedonia. Now, Macedonia, where's that? Well, Macedonia is, is I suppose what you might call the northern part of, of, of Greece. Would have been, you know, the equivalent for that would today would be that. It's sort of so you had the southern part where Corinth was, and then you had the northern part, um, uh, uh, sort of which was called, which in those days was, well, there is still a country called Macedonia, but slightly different borders. And um, uh, one of the churches, of course, which was in Macedonia, uh, was the the church at Philippi, which we know about from the book of Acts, uh, and also we know about from the letter that Paul wrote to that church, which is what we call the letter of the Philippians. So when he's talking about the churches in Macedonia, one of the churches he's talking about is that church at Philippi. Now, there are a number of things we can learn from, the, from what Paul says about the example of this church, or these churches in Macedonia. And the first is this that the generosity of this church was a sign of the grace of God at work in that church have a look with me again at verse 1 we want you to know brothers about the grace of God that is being given among the churches of Macedonia the grace of God now What does that that word grace mean? Well, I'm sure many of you will know, grace means love, which is undeserved. Or strength, which is undeserved. Or power, which is undeserved. Unmerited favor is what people often call it, and quite rightly so. And the Bible teaches us that salvation, the salvation of a believer is entirely by the grace of God, by the undeserved love of God. Some of you uh, will remember, I'm sure, famous verses in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith. And this not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not by work, not a result of works. So that no one can boast. Our salvation as Christians is entirely by the undeserved kindness of God. We've not, we don't contribute anything to our salvation. We've received it as a free gift. Which has not been paid for or earned in any way, shape or form. Why is the salvation of true Christians by grace? Well, the answer is because of a combination of two factors. First of all, our sinfulness, and secondly, God's holiness. As regards our sinfulness, we sin every day thousands and thousands of times. We're only aware of probably a tiny fraction of, of the sins that we commit—sins of thought, things that sins of speech, sins of action—are coming out from us all the time, and every single sin is worthy of condemnation in hell. And God is so pure and so holy and so righteous; He cannot have anything to do with with with, with sin. And so in our natural state, as we are, we all of us be disqualified from heaven. All of us would go to hell a million times over. And we can't do anything to, to rectify that situation ourselves. You know, even if we were to try to live really good lives and try to really improve our act, we would never make ourselves fit for heaven because the scripture says all our righteous acts are like filthy rags. And this is why uh, religions like Roman Catholicism and, and um, Islam and, Hindu, well, in fact, all other religions, Jehovah's witness they all cannot save because those are all religions of works. And they fail to, all of them in a different way, fail to take account of the great sinfulness of mankind. But thanks be to God, what we can't do ourselves, he has done for us by sending his son Jesus to come into this world and to die on the cross in the place of sinners. And when Jesus died on that cross he made the full and perfect and sufficient sacrifice for all the sins of all those who trust in him. And so he offers salvation to to all as a free gift. He says here you are you can have your sins forgiven you can have eternal life You can be born again, you can enter heaven totally free. All you have to do is leave your old life and put your trust in Jesus, and you will have eternal life. And that's why our salvation is is by grace, because it's undeserved. It's a free gift. If you're a Christian, did you pay for your salvation? No. Did you earn your salvation? No. Did you deserve your salvation? No. It's by grace. And even the, even the faith, that verse in Ephesians 2 says, that even the faith by which we receive that salvation is also the gift of God. So you can't even say, oh, well, look at me, look at all that faith. No, because where did your faith come from? God gave it to you. But what this verse says, it's not only that our salvation is by grace, but also our obedience is by grace. See, you might think, well, okay, I, you know, I accept that I, I'm saved by grace alone, but then I, you know, I've worked really hard as a Christian. You know, I've I put, put my efforts in, you know, and well, I, I think I deserve what I, the rewards I get. No. Because everything that you do, everything that I do in terms of our obedience to God is also by grace. Because where did your knowledge of the love of God come from? Where did your knowledge of Scripture come from? Where did your knowledge, where did your empowerment by the Holy Spirit come from? Where did your motivation to serve God come from? From God. Was there anything special about you that gave you those things? No. God in his grace, in his kindness, not only saves us, but also in his kindness, he gives us the ability to serve him. Now Paul talks about that in, in Ephesians three, in verses seven and eight, where he's talking about his own ministry, and he says, he says, of this gospel I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace to me, which was given by the working of his power. To me, he says this, though I am the very least of all the saints, the actual literal translation is I'm less than the least of all the saints this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ so Paul was saved by grace but he also served by grace and that's true for you and that's true for me if you're a Christian our ability to serve is by grace and so this means we can't boast you know you might say, "Oh, you know what? I, I put, I put a few hundred pounds in, into the church bank." Well, is that anything to boast about? If if God enabled you to be to be to be generous, or you you gave some money to the poor, well, great. But can you boast about it? No, because it's God's grace that enables. And not just that. Oh, I I evangelized and I, I I I preached the gospel to somebody. Somebody got converted. Well, wonderful. But Can you be proud about that as if you've done anything? It's by God's grace. All is by God's grace. Well, that's the first thing. Now, second thing. We see that their generosity was in spite of great difficulty. Look at verse 2 now. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. So here the apostle talks about how the churches in Macedonia suffered a severe test of affliction. Now, if you've been coming to the church for a while, you might be familiar. We've come across this word a few times. Uh, it's often translated in the older translation, tribulation. And it speaks of being in a compressor, <laughs> squeezed, under pressure. Being in a situation where you just feel like you know, you're know you almost going to explode because there's this pressure that's bearing down upon you. It, it speaks of being exceedingly uncomfortable, exceedingly finding life very, very difficult. Now, uh, we don't know what the afflictions were that, that the, the churches in the in, in, in Macedonia suffered. Um, very likely, persecution was, was, was one thing they suffered because we know that... Paul suffered persecution in Philippine, and uh, very likely that will have continued against the church there. Uh, it could have been various illnesses that they were suffering. Uh, they may have been victims of crime. Um, they may have had family troubles. You know, we, we perhaps sometimes imagine that, that, you know, the sorts of family troubles we suffer, like breakdown of relationships or difficult children or you know oh these are particularly modern problems but, but actually you know you read your bible and you find you know you find relationship problems marriages under strain rebellious children it's, it's as old as it's as old as mankind isn't it and we can be pretty sure that, that, that the, you know you can be pretty sure and I can be pretty sure that the sort of afflictions that, that you are suffering they'll have suffered as well in different ways. Um, so there's an important lesson here, which is that Christians do suffer affliction. That is the reality of life. And, and we we're warned we were about this in the Bible, aren't we? I mean, Jesus said, didn't he? Remember? John 16, verse 33, very important verse. I've told you these things, I've said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world, you will have, what? Tribulation, trouble. Same word as we've got here in 2 Corinthians. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Or think of what Paul says in Acts chapter 14 and verse 22, where he says to the believers who've been converted through his ministry, he says, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of heaven. Or Romans 8, verse 35, Paul says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, same word again, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Well, the answer is, of course, none of those things can separate you from the love of Christ. But the point is that these things are mentioned, Christians suffer tribulation. They trouble they suffer trouble. That's the nature of, of being a Christian. So don't be surprised if you you know if you're a Christian and you're suffering tribulation, extreme pressure, from whatever source, don't be surprised. That that that's that's part and parcel of being a Christian. But he also talks about poverty. He says says about these Christians, their extreme poverty. These were poor people. And we can learn from this as well, that, that godly Christians are sometimes poor. There's no hint at all here that these people were poor because of any disobedience on their part or because of any failure on their part, or because of any lack of faith on their part, far from it. These were outstanding Christians, but they were poor. And this tells us something, doesn't it? That, that uh, Christians can sometimes be poor. Uh, not always, of course. Sometimes um, Christians can be prosperous and well-off. Um, and there are examples of that in the New Testament of, of, of believers who were well off. But quite often, Christians will be poor. After all, Jesus himself was poor. I heard one, one teacher, I think his name was Creflo Dollar, and uh, he said that, that Jesus was rich in this, uh, this thing. That, well, how he managed to say that, I can't imagine, because Jesus was poor. He'd obviously poor. He 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 had he when he died he literally had no possessions at all. He was stripped naked, he had nothing. And even while in his life he he was very, very poor, dependent upon upon the the, the giving of other people. A uh, Paul, who wrote this, was poor Uh Mary, the mother of Jesus, talks about how God has raised up the poor. And she's including herself in that, of course. Uh Lazarus, in the story of the rich man and Lazarus. Who was the one who went to heaven? It was Lazarus, the beggar, who went to heaven. He was the godly man. The rich man went to Hades. See, there are those Christians who say, or call themselves Christians, they say, if you exercise faith, you'll be rich. Just make positive affirmations about yourself and you'll be rich. God, they said, can you imagine that God would want any of his children to be poor? Well, he was quite happy for for Jesus to be poor, for Paul to be poor. Now, what's so amazing about, so, so don't be disheartened. You know, sometimes we can, sometimes when we go through times when we are finding, you know, Things tight. We can sometimes say, "Oh, is there something wrong with me? Have I failed God? Have I got have I lacked have I lacking faith?" No, because lots of true Christians have had times of poverty. Now, what's so amazing about these believers in Philippi was that even though they had so many afflictions, they were and they were so poor, they were still very generous. They could easily have said. Oh, we've got so many problems at the moment. We've got having to deal with so many issues. Oh my God! Well, our head is so full of all these problems. Got no time. Got no space. Not got no no resources to be able to be generous. Can't really think about anybody else because we've got all these problems. But they didn't do that. Yes, they had all these problems, but and they were afflicted in so many ways and so poor. But they still uh, gave generously to their poor brothers and sisters in Jerusalem. Now next thing. They were joyful. Look at verse 2 again. In spite of a a severe test of affliction their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Abundance of joy. They were Poor materially, but they were rich spiritually. Don't you so often find the two, that, that combination? Well, that juxtaposition happens, don't you? You have the, the church at Laodicea, so rich, so prosperous, but poor spiritually. And you have others, poor materially, but very rich spiritually. This was a church which was these churches were poor materially but they were rich spiritually they had this abundance of joy they were overflowing with joy maybe they had learned from the Philippians had learned from Paul's example remember how when Paul was wrongly imprisoned and thrown into prison when he went to Philippi what, what did he do? Do you remember what he did in the middle of the night? What was he doing when that earthquake happened? Do you remember? Singing hymns with Silas. Praising the Lord. He'd he got blood running down his back where he'd been whipped and scourged and everything else. But he was praising God. And, and they, they, they'd, learnt, they, they'd got this joy about them. They, they pick this up from 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 Paul to be joyful and we see that this is the proper Christian response to affliction we perhaps pick up from our society don't we oh well you know perhaps we're, 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 we're British you know we, we, we have a stiff upper lip we just keep going grimly we're just going to keep you Keep calm and carry on, you know. That's the idea, just, just, just battle on with a sort of grim set face. But that's not the Christian response to affliction. Rejoicing in affliction, that's the Christian response. Paul was later to write to the same Philippian church, Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. That's how we should respond when we are afflicted. I wonder if the cultivation of joy has the priority in your life that it should. And I'm saying this not to say, point fingers. finger, you say, well, right, you, you, bad, you bad people. I say it's to challenge myself. Where's the joy in your life, Henry? And I say it to you, where's the joy in your life? Where's the joy in the Lord? There should be joy about us. We can forget that, can't we? The fruit of the Spirit love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith. Number two on the list. It's very important that there should be this joy. How can we cultivate this joy? well first thing of course make sure you're a Christian you've got to be, you can't be joyful if you're not a Christian you've got no, no grounds for Christian joy if you're not saved so make sure you're saved but having been saved pray to the Lord oh Lord fill me with the Holy Spirit fill me with your joy bring to the Lord the things that you're worried about and leave them with him and and trust him that he'll look after those things in prayer but most of all as we reminded in that song that we sang earlier, we need to deliberately focus on the future. Focus on our inheritance. Focus on the blessings that we have lined up for us in heaven that will be bursting upon us when Jesus comes again. So they were joyful. Now, thirdly, fourthly, they gave with sincerity, verse 2. For in, spite, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and ex- their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. Now, here's another reminder about how these people were spiritually rich. Talks there about a wealth of generosity. Uh, the word there is the word plutos, from which we get our, in, our English word Plutocrat, you know, somebody a plutocrat is somebody who who exercises power using money. Because it's so powerful, because so money so wealthy you can exercise power. So these people were wealthy, but they were wealthy not monetary wise, but they were wealthy spiritually. They had a wealth. Now, the next word is interesting. Our translation translates it generosity. But the actual word actually means without pretense or sincerity. We have it we had it earlier if you want to just quickly look back to chapter 1 and verse 12. Hope I've got the right reference. Yeah. For our boast is this the testimony of our conscience. That we behaved in the world with simplicity and godly sincerity. Not by earthly wisdom but by the grace of God and supremely so towards you. There was a, 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 a lack of pretense about their giving. There was a sincerity about it. Uh, actually, it's, it also occurs in, in Ephesians 6, which I think Ed might be speaking from tonight, I'm not sure, but Ephesians 6 and verse 5, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as men pleases, but as bond servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. Sincerity. You see, this, So they they gave because they genuinely wanted to do good to other people. They had genuine love for God, and they had genuine love for others. Now, what a difference between this pattern and what so many talk about today. So many say, ah, giving money away is a method to get rich. They say, you want to get rich? That's a great thing. Let me tell you a way to get rich. The way to get rich is to give 10% of your money away, preferably to my organisation, and then God will make sure that what you've given multiplies to you and you become a rich person. So that these people are saying, now this is, the, this is a great thing, a great idea of being rich, and, and we really commend you for wanting to be rich. It's just... You need to have the right method, which is by giving a certain proportion of money away. No. That's not sincere giving. Sincere giving is because you want to bless the other person. Or because you want the kingdom of God to be extended. You, you have a desire. You're acting out of love for others. Not because you want to get rich. Now, there is a blessing which comes from giving, which we'll come to in chapter 9. But it's really important to understand that, that God wants there to be sincerity about our giving. And doing anything out of a love of money, even giving out of a love of money, is a very, very dangerous motivation and a wrong motivation. If we just look over to 1 Timothy chapter 6, you see this is very clearly taught there. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 5, Paul warns about false teachers who teach that godliness is a means of gain. They're saying, oh, look, follow Christianity and you get rich. But he says, verse 6, 1 Timothy 6, verse 6, page 1180 but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything away out of the world. But if we have food and clothing, we with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils, It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. My brothers and sisters, love of money is very, very dangerous. You should never do anything out of a love of money. Act out of love. Whether you're giving, whether you're wanting to serve God in in evangelism, or whether you're wanting to, to do your work, Act out of love. Do everything you do for the glory of God. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and he will add to you your needs. He'll provide for you. But don't make your motivation the love of money, even as you're giving. So, but these people, they gave with sincerity for right reasons. Now then, sixthly, they gave voluntarily. Have a look at verse 3 again for they gave according to their means as I can testify and beyond their means of their own accord begging us earnestly for the for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. Sorry I've missed out uh, a uh, heading there come back to that one they gave sacrificially same verses, though. They gave, it says, they gave beyond their means, according to their means, and beyond their means. Now, the actual word there is, it's in the Greek, is the word dunamis, from which we get our word dynamite, or power. They gave according to what they could give and even beyond what they could give. Now, I have heard of people using this verse to justify telling people to take out personal loans in order to give to their organization. They say, ah, you want to be healed? Well, show you trust in God. Bring a big offering. Bring a thousand pounds to to, 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 on top of your normal tithe, give a, bring a £1,000 and lay down at the front to show that you trust God. Oh, but I don't have... Somebody says, oh, but I don't have a £1,000. Well, go and borrow the money, they say. Take out a personal loan. It's shocking. It's disgraceful, in my view. Because they're bringing people to the point of being impoverished and, in, under the, and chained by debt in order to feed their own lusts, the, the preacher's own lusts, and the, the, his, his own organisation. Should we take out a, a loan in order to finance giving? No, I don't think that can be right. Uh, because the Lord doesn't want us to have the the, uh, the the ball and chain of indebtedness. Of course, some people take out loans for, for, for mortgages, buying a house, which is... Which, which is a carefully arranged organized method to, in a sense, save money through saving rent. That, that's a different matter. But to, but to take out a high interest loan in order to finance a call that somebody's made to, to give, no, that cannot be right. But, so how do we understand these verses? I think the way to understand this is that they, they were prepared to forego... Their own their own uh, expenditure they want, would want to, to, to have. maybe they would have liked to have gone on a holiday somewhere, or they would have liked to have, to have bought this expensive thing or, or, or even some nicer food than they normally have. but they said, no. In order to make some money, in order to spare some money, in order to be to help these poor believers in Rome, in, 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 in Jerusalem. We will dig into what we would have done in order, to, uh, in order to do that. So they gave sacrificially. They gave to the point that it hurt them. They gave to the point where it, 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 uh, it, it affected their lifestyle. It reminds me of the widow's mite. Do you remember how this, this poor widow put into the offering what the world would have considered to be a tiny amount but for her it was all she had to live on that day she made a sacrifice whereas there were other people who were bringing loads and loads of money into the temple offering and, but they were giving their abundance they had more than enough to, to supply their need so here's this commendation of this church they gave sacrificially now then we then come to the next section which is what, what I read earlier or what I talked about, they gave voluntarily. Look again at verses 3 and 4. He says, They gave according to their means, as, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favour of taking part in the relief of the saints. Paul did not go to them and say, Right, come on, you lot. Cough up, where's the money? They must have heard about the problem in Jerusalem. Maybe somebody told them, maybe Paul had told them. We don't know, but somebody had told them. But when they heard about it, they wanted to give. The money was not extracted from them. Rather, there was a pressure coming from them, saying, We want to give. How can we give? It's lovely. It happens here in the church sometimes. You know, we don't, we don't advertise our, our needs and, you know, the offering box or anything else. I always forget to say anything. But sometimes people, someone's been coming to the church for a while and they say, how can I give? I want to give. No one's asked them to give, but they want to give. And this is, this is the beautiful thing that, that when the Holy Spirit works in people's lives, they just want to give. There's that desire how can I give? Because the Holy Spirit gives that 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 motivation, that desire. Now that's what these people had. They had that they wanted to give. You know, I hear of some churches where you know there's a, a rule laid down, you must give your ten percent and you need to mark your, put your number on the envelope, or you need to mark you need to give your bank details so they can see check checking all the offerings against people's personal bank details. And then, you know, if, if that, if, and they find out the income of the different people and they say, oh, you know, they work out, oh, so-and-so, he's not giving his 10%. So they get a knock from the door from the pastor, you know, where's your 10%? What's that to do with this? This is the complete opposite. We want to give, not we want your money. We want to give. And that's the, that's the right attitude, isn't it? That's the right approach. That desire, that spontaneous desire to give. You know, you, you, you think about a plant. If you cut a stem of a plant, from the pressure from the roots, there's that sap coming up through the, through the stem. And that's what it is with Christians. When the Holy Spirit's working in their lives, they want to give. They want to give out to others. Is that desire in your heart, I wonder? It should be in your heart. It should be in my heart that desire to give, that desire to do good to others. Paul goes on to say later on in in chapter 9 about how God loves a cheerful giver. Are you a cheerful giver? Maybe you might be, oh, I suppose I've got to put some money in the offering. Or I suppose I've got to give some money to the poor. But you send the money off and you think, oh, I could have done with that. No, we should be glad to see it go. Because, because we want to give. That's how these people were. And then finally, their giving sprang from their devotion to Christ. Verse 5. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They'd given themselves to Christ. Christ. The monetary giving was, as it were, the tip of the iceberg. It was the cream on the cake. But the consecration of their money, the giving of their money, came from a life that's consecrated to God. I use that word consecrated. I don't hear that word very often these days, consecration. When I was growing up as a boy, you used to hear that quite a lot. People would say You need to consecrate yourself to God. You need to give yourself to God. You need to surrender fully to God. Because that's what God calls us to do, isn't it? He calls us to surrender our lives fully to him. So your money is the Lord's, yes. But also your physical strength is the Lord's. Your time is the Lord's. Your work is for the Lord. Your family life is for the Lord. The Lord is Lord of everything. That's what it means to surrender all to Christ. And that's what God, he's the the Lord, isn't he? He's he's the King of kings. He's the Lord of lords. We sang earlier, he's the King. Well, let that reflect in our lives that, Lord, you're the King of my life. And once once the Lord is the King of your life, of course you're going to want to, you're going to want to, as part of your submission to him, you're going to say, yes, I want to, give a certain amount of my money away uh, to the Lord's work and to to those who are poor. So may may we learn from the example of these wonderful churches in in Macedonia. Uh, Let me just run through those points very quickly, again, just so that you you get them. Seven points we got from this. First of all, they're giving... Sprang from the grace of God. There was a sign of the grace of God in their lives. Secondly, their generosity was in spite of great difficulty. Thirdly, their giving was joyful. Uh, Fourthly, they gave with sincerity. Fifthly, they gave sacrificially. Sixthly, they gave voluntarily, and seventhly, their giving sprang from devotion to Christ. Well, may God write his word upon our hearts, and may he give us the grace to follow the example of these wonderful Christians in Macedonia, whose example still speaks today. And if you're not yet a Christian, well, I'd say again, first thing to do, come to Christ, because you can't do this without being born again. Come to Christ. Ask him to save you. And then he will give you the strength to do what is spoken of here. Well, we're going to sing for our last hymn. Um, a hymn of consecration. A hymn of dedication. I hope we can sing this honestly. Uh, Take my life and let it be all your purpose, Lord, for me. To consecrate my fleeting days. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. So that's number 850 in the any praise book.